0: okay good morning everyone if you are still buying cake outside firstly thank you and secondly can i ask you to come inside and grab a seat and we're going to carry on with our message my name is grant Um, i'm one of the pastors here at restored and we're going to continue our series uh, day in the life looking at jesus who he is what he's like what he did uh, and how that impacts us from mark chapter one this morning so let's take a moment to pray and then we'll get into our message Um, Holy Spirit, I welcome you here, and I ask that you would speak to us today and teach us and reveal Jesus to us, and I pray that you would lead us and show us how to respond, what to do, what you would have us know. So please open your word to us and lead us in Jesus' name, amen. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Mark 1, otherwise it will come up on the screen. But um, before we read today's passage, um, I'm a big words guy. Um, I studied English and culture at university, and I'm one of those guys, if you know the whole five love languages thing, I love words. Words of affirmation, it's my kind of thing. So a year ago, around my birthday, uh, in the Shamassian household, um, they started to call me big words guy. They would say, Grant, oh, you mean big words guy, because of this whole thing. Uh, So I love words, and today we're going to talk a lot about words. But I'm gonna reveal something else about myself now before we look at the passage. That's that um, I think I think this is like borderline being cool and not being cool, but I really do like the show Friends. I know this is a real throwback, but this week I watched a clip um, from the show called Joey Not So Much With The Words. So if any of you watched the show in the past, maybe you'll know some of these like scenes from Friends over the years where Joey was given um, a word of the day toilet paper and started to drop these words into conversation or when he started dating a professor and started to use some of her smart words in conversation, like uh, what was the word that he used? Um, The big word that he used was acrimonious, just started to drop that, which I had to Google this morning, even though I'm a big words guy. But uh, the thing I really liked was there was a scene where Joey has not been asked by Monica and Chandler to write them a character reference for their adoption agency. He's a little bit offended about this. So he says, why? You know, why did you not ask me? Why did you ask Rachel, not me? And Monica says, because we don't think of you as being so much with the words. Joey, not so much with the words. So he gets offended. They're like, of course you can write a reference for us, Joey. We'd love that. And he does. And to really, like, turn things up, he uses a thesaurus on every single word. So when they read it, they're like, Joey, we don't understand. This doesn't make sense. He's like, what, too sophisticated for you guys? But he's literally gone and used the thesaurus the whole way through this letter. So they say, well, what does this sentence mean? And he says, it means they're warm, nice people with big hearts. Like, Joey, but it says they're humid, prepossessing homo sapiens with full-sized aortic pumps. <laughs> and he looks at them and he says, and I really mean it, dude. He's like really proud of what he's written for them. And they have to let him down and say, Joey, we can't use this letter. You've signed it baby kangaroo tribione. And if you get, his name's Joey, it's an Australian thing. But I'm a big words guy. Joey is not so much with the words, but words are really, really important, you know? I'm sure all of us when we went to university or at our jobs had to learn some new terms and what they meant and the definitions of them and how to use them. I'm sure some of us to order our favorite coffee have had to learn some new terminology and some new words. And I'm sure we've been in situations where we or someone we know has used the wrong word. Like they've been speaking in a sentence and they've said something out of context and it makes no sense. Kind of like the South African guy on stage earlier, making his little mess-ups, telling you to steal cake and all of that. But this morning we're going to talk about words because words really matter. As someone said, words create worlds. And understanding words is so significant for us. Especially as we read the Bible, we read God's word to us and know what it's really asking of us and saying to us. So this morning as we read a really short passage, two verses, we're going to read about four words, four key concepts or ideas which are really big in terms of who Jesus is and what he's like and what he's all about and also which are really important for us as we follow Jesus and as we look at what it means to be a Christian. These are the things Jesus focuses on, the things he talks about all the time, the things that he really, really cared about. So If you're here today and you're exploring Christianity and you want to know more about Jesus, this is a great sermon for you because we're going to look at these four key words and ideas. And if you're not, but you've been in church for a long time and you've kind of glided by not knowing what these things mean, just dropping them in conversation from time to time, hoping you get by today, hopefully I can help you out, help you to know what these mean a little bit more and we can all grow together. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn to Mark 1 verse 14 and we'll read these two verses together. It says this, After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So first things first here, before we look at these four words. It says here, the time was fulfilled. After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee, and the time was fulfilled. This is obviously a significant moment. But what we're seeing is that before Jesus comes onto the scene, John fades away. Now, John's whole ministry has been to prepare the way of the Lord. John's been getting the people ready for Jesus. He's been preaching this message of repentance. He's been baptizing people. He's been pointing people to Jesus, saying this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John has been preparing the way for the Lord, and now Jesus is here. Jesus is on the scene. So John can kind of exit stage left. It's like fade to black with John. Now Jesus comes into prominence, which in John's gospel, John speaks about himself and he says, I must decrease and he must increase, which is also the same for all of our lives. You know, in our lives, we want Jesus to increase and ourselves to decrease. We want to shine our spotlights on Jesus more and more and more with our lives. And Jesus chooses to launch his ministry in his hometown of Galilee, which is a really cool thing. He, he goes into the place that he's from. And he begins his ministry and says these words there. But what's also important for us to see is that John was way out in the desert, in the middle of nowhere. People had to leave their homes and their jobs and their family and everything and find where John was at. But Jesus is coming to the people. Jesus is meeting the people where they're at, which tells us a lot about what it means for us to follow him. We don't have to go looking for Jesus. Jesus is looking for us. We don't have to try and find him as if he's hidden away, trying to trick us. Jesus is coming after you. He's coming after me in the best possible way. He's looking for you to find you and to find me because he wants to know us. So Jesus comes into Galilee. He moves towards us. And what we see here is that if John's baptism and Jesus's temptation that we've talked about the last two weeks, if those were like a preparation time for Jesus, now he's stepping into the ring. One of the commentaries I read said, this is like Jesus has called a press conference and everyone's there, everyone's around. And now he's announcing who he is and what he's about and what he's going to do. That's what's happening in these two verses. So it's a really, really big deal. Jesus is going public. And here in these two verses, he shares these four huge ideas with us, which are gospel, kingdom, repent, and believe. Gospel, kingdom, repent, and believe. So today, very simply, we're going to define those terms, look at what they mean, look at what they mean for our lives, look at what they tell us about Jesus, and try and leave here knowing how we can respond to them. But firstly, let's start with the word gospel or good news. Now, um, if you've been around this church for any amount of time, you've heard the word gospel a lot. Like I was thinking about it, like the best way to think about it is if you played restored bingo on a Sunday and you had a card to fill out, gospel would be the first card I would do. Like I would be sure somewhere on Sunday, I was going to hear that word from someone. That is one of those words that we speak about a lot. We're a gospel-centered church. The gospel matters to us a lot. We speak about the gospel. We embody the gospel. We want a culture of the gospel. We care about the gospel. But what does the gospel mean? That's one of those things, a word like this can become something we're so familiar with and we use, but what does it mean and how does it impact us? Well, let me share two quotes with you. I hope at the back of your mind, you're thinking, well, what does the gospel mean? What would my elevator pitch of the gospel be? How would I share this in a nutshell? But John Tyson defines it this way. The gospel is the good news that God, our father, the creator, out of his great love for us has come to rescue us from sin, Satan, death, and hell, and to renew all things in and through the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, to establish his kingdom through his people in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is for God's great glory and our profound joy. I love it. There's a lot in there, but I love that. Another quote, this is by Matt Chandler. He says, in its simplest form, the gospel is God's reconciling work in Christ. That's through the life, death and resurrection of Christ. God is making all things new, both personally for those who repent and believe, and cosmically as he redeems culture and creation from its subjection to futility. So that's a lot, but in a nutshell, the gospel is God's reconciling work through Jesus. It's the hope of Christians. It's what we believe and what we hold to. And that word gospel, the, the Greek word, uh, euangelion, That word was an everyday word. That wasn't a Christian word. That wasn't a spiritual word. That wasn't like a word that was only used in spiritual places. It was an everyday word, meaning life-changing news, a significant event. So this would be used all the time. This is a word that Jesus used to describe what he was doing. But there were all these examples of different gospels. For example, around the time of Mark and around the time of Jesus, there's this inscription of the beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus. And they were celebrating the fact that Augustus was born and that he was crowned as king. There was this coronation for him. But also for the Roman Empire, when they went to war, if they won, what they would do is they would spread the gospel. They would share the good news that they had won the battle. They would send literally these gospel preachers, these heralds all around the empire to every town and village and city to share the good news that they had been victorious. And that the people could rest in the fact that the Roman Empire had expanded and that they had won and that they, they did not need to fear. They sent out these little g gospel preachers everywhere to share the good news that all may know. So that was what was going on in the culture at that time. But interestingly, in that Greco Roman world, the word gospel was always plural. This was one set of good news amongst many other announcements of good news that would be shared. But in the Bible, in the New Testament, Evangelion, it appears only in the singular. In the Bible, this is the good news of God. There's only one. There's lots of lowercase g Gospels going on, but there's only one good news of God which we trust to and hold to, it's the news of Jesus that is being shared in Mark 1. And Mark's understanding here is big because he's not just saying that this is a set of truths or principles or a worldview we should have or anything like this, Mark is actually trying to say that this good news, capital G Gospel, is a person named Jesus. In verse 1 of his letter, his his biography of Jesus, he says that he is writing about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul, writing later on in Galatians 1 verse 6, says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And Paul's understanding the gospel is Jesus. And then there's lots of lowercase g gospels that we could trust in instead. And he's saying, no, we trust in Jesus. He is our gospel, he is our message, he is our hope. Jesus is our message. Jesus is our good news. Jesus is what we proclaim and what we trust in and what we're building our lives on. Jesus is the message. So Jesus comes into Galilee proclaiming the gospel, but also proclaiming himself, which is wild. I mean, if I did that today, you would struggle. you would be like, I don't think I'm coming back. Jesus comes into town and he proclaims a good news, but it's the good news. And he's right at the center of that message. That's what's going on here. Tim Keller, through his life and teaching, made famous this line, that the gospel is good news, not good advice. The gospel is good news, not good advice. Now, that's not the message I grew up being taught in the churches that I grew up in. I know what your experience was but he's saying the gospel is good news, not good advice, meaning advice is when you tell someone what to do. Advice is when someone comes to you and they're like, oh man, I'm in this situation, this thing's happened to me, I'm not sure what to do, I need to make a decision, and you give them some wisdom, some counsel, some practical help on how they should respond and what they should do. But what is saying, what Mark's saying, what Jesus is saying, is that the gospel is news, not advice. It's not something we need to do. It's something that's been done. It's something that has happened. It's in the past. It's history. It's an actual event that has happened. And we live in light of that news. We we don't need to do something with it. It is just standalone news on its own. The gospel is an event and the gospel is a person. And that's what Jesus is wanting us to see here. He is the gospel and his life, his death and his resurrection are the news of what has been done for us of what has happened. So when we respond to the gospel, when we hear the gospel, we're hearing about a person who Jesus is, and we're hearing about the events of his life, what he has done for us. That's the gospel. I don't know if you can think of any moments that changed your life. Other events or conversations or situations you were in. I thought of three, some happy, some sad. Remember asking my wife, Michelle, to marry me. That's like a moment, like, you're not sure, you know? I'm pretty sure she's gonna say yes, but it could go anyway. I remember asking her, and there's like that cliffhanger moment of what's gonna happen, and then the yes drops, and my life is different forever. You know, she said yes, we're gonna get married. Everything changed. It was a really good moment. I can remember on the other end of the spectrum, a really hard moment where we sat down in the living room with her parents, and where they shared with us that her dad had cancer. And then six weeks later, getting a phone call to hear that he had died. A really hard moment, really hard event that changed our life. And then I remember years later getting an email. I think I woke up at two or three in the morning and did that bad habit of checking my phone, if any of you do that. And I had an email saying that our visa had been granted. It was the 23rd of December. I checked my phone. Shell was asleep. I'm not going to wake her up. So in the morning, I had to say, "Shell, yeah, I woke up three hours ago, four hours ago. And I found out... That our visa had been granted. We are actually going to move to San Diego. Our lives have changed. Can you think of any of those events or moments or conversations which have changed your life? Because that's what Mark is talking about here. That's what's going on here. The gospel is good news. The gospel is an event which changes everything. The second big idea here is the kingdom of God. And as we said already, Mark writes that the time is fulfilled, the time has come. And this announcement that he's presenting here is the definitive moment of all time. You know, this is salvation has dawned, the Messiah is here, the kingdom is here, and it is advancing. And what's been going on throughout time is that these prophets have proclaimed that the kingdom is coming, and now Jesus is saying the kingdom is here, which is kind of a wild thing. We've already said Jesus is saying that he is the gospel, he is the good news, the, capital T, gospel, capital G, And now he's saying, and I am the kingdom of God that was long proclaimed. You know, if you were looking for the kingdom, it's here in this flesh. And this kingdom is going to advance. And as Jesus went around teaching, the kingdom advanced. He taught the kingdom. And as he healed and as he performed miracles and he did his thing, the kingdom advanced through his works and through what he did. And hearts were changed and people began to follow him. And this kingdom expanded all around the empire. Jesus stands in front of a group of people in his hometown and says, I am the good news and I am the kingdom and it's happening. So what exactly is the kingdom of God? Well, when we hear kingdom, we think it could be an earthly political or military kingdom. We might think like a geographical space. Jeremy Treat says the kingdom is God's reign through God's people over God's place. God's reign through God's people over God's place. And really, as Jesus uses this metaphor of the kingdom of God, he's giving us a phrase which redefines our lives. Like this is is changing the way we think about reality and what is going on. And it leads us to make a choice. How am I going to respond to what he's speaking about? How am I going to respond to the news that this man is king and his reign is coming? Am I going to get behind this and follow it? Or am I going to do something else? How am I going to live in light of his rule and reign? Because Jesus gave his followers these words, he taught a lot of different things, he gave a lot of different commands, but in Matthew 6, verse 33, he said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It's a priority-setting moment, seek first the kingdom of God. He's talking about God's will and God's way, saying that's got to be the priority for our lives, seek first the kingdom, seek first his will, seek first his way, and follow me. So this is clearly a big deal. Jeremy Treat again says the kingdom of God is the vision of the world reordered around the powerful love of God in Christ. And since the beginning, since Adam and Eve's rebellion in the garden, the world had been marked by and impacted by sin, reframed, changed, challenged by that. And what we see is that the king that we follow, the king that we've been singing about, the king that we're talking about today is a redemptive king coming into the world to make things the way they were meant to be from the beginning. And the message of his kingdom is not this escape from earth to heaven, but of heaven coming down to earth and his rule and reign expanding everywhere through Jesus and what he's doing. And as Jesus announces this, this good news, and as he announces this kingdom, there's a response that he calls us to make. It's a response to repent and believe. There's a quote that I love about this, which I think helps us to think about what it means for us today, what this message means for us. It's from Eugene Peterson, who writes, Jesus' metaphor, the kingdom of God, defines the world in which we live. We live in a world where Christ is king, and if Christ is king, then everything, quite literally everything and everyone has to be reimagined, reconfigured, reoriented to a way of life that consists in an obedient following of Jesus. A total renovation of our imagination, our way of looking at things, what Jesus commanded in his no nonsense imperative, repent, is required. So some of you are like, cool, 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 cool. This is a lot for a Sunday morning to talk about reorienting your entire life around this man and this message and his kingdom. It's a huge thing. You're like, I might need another coffee before that. Like, this is a lot to talk about this morning and a lot to think about, like the the reality of this. Like, this is an idea, it's simple to grasp. This is a reality, redefines everything for us. So I'll just let that hang in the air for a moment before we move on. It's a huge thing that's going on here. And Jesus calls us to respond to this news by repenting. My my favorite definition of that is that it's a change of mind that leads to a change of heart and a change of life. As we're introduced to this man, as we're introduced to this historical event, as we're introduced to this news, it changes the way we think. And in terms, as we start to see the world through those lenses, as we start to understand this news, it changes the way we do everything else. Our, Our thinking changes, our desires change, and then our life changes over time repentance is a big deal. I I always think of it as cognitive dissonance. You know, we've lived in a certain way for so long that this information clashes with our thinking. It clashes with our kingdom. It clashes with our understanding of the way things work. And it's like this rubbing together of different ideas, this tension that is caused. And the question is, what will we do with these competing messages and kingdoms and ways of thinking? I think um, the metaphor that I've found most helpful for understanding this is from The Truman Show. Um, I love that movie. Again, we had friends earlier from, I don't know, the 90s. I think The Truman Show is probably from the 90s too. But it was like the original reality TV kind of thing. There's a few movies from back in the day that touch on this, but basically Jim Carrey plays Truman Burbank. And if you know the story, he's a baby who grows up on a set, a movie set. The cameras are following him and following his life. And as he grows up, Everything he knows, everyone he knows, his mom, his friends, his teachers, eventually his wife, everyone is an actor who's playing a role in a story which has been created that he is at the center of. He is the only one who does not know about this. He's the only one. And he sees all of this as true and the way it is. He sees this as reality, but for everyone else, this is just a job. They're part of a really big deal movie, but this is just a job for them. And over time, as this movie progresses, what happens is a number of things happen. There's some conversations. And over time, Truman is starting to piece together the fact that something is wrong here. You know, this, this life that I'm living, there's, there's something wrong. He sees a, a light fall from the sky and crash on the road. He's like, that's not, that's not normal. There shouldn't be lights in the sky. He has people run up to him and tell him that this is not real, that he's part of a show, that this isn't real life. Over time, he's piecing together this information and he starts to live in light of what is real, not in light of the show that he's in or the story that he's in. And what happens is over time, he decides that he wants to leave. He's been trained to be scared of water so that he won't try and escape from the set. But he gets onto a boat and he sails through the ocean and eventually he bumps into a wall which he gets really upset about because he realizes it is true. You know, this whole thing that I was not wanting to believe was a lie. It's true. I'm in a set. This is a wall. This is the end. It's been painted like a sky, so he wouldn't realize. But he bumps into it, and he hits the wall in frustration. And then he sees a set of stairs that leads to a door with an exit sign above it, which is just perfect. I don't know how he hit that part of the wall, but just perfectly aimed. And he goes up to the the door, and as he's about to exit, the voice of the creator speaks to him. A, a voice comes from the speakers and the set. It's Christoph, the director or the creator of the show, who loves him deeply, but who does not want him to leave. And Christoph explains to him what's been going on. He tells him for sure, actually, you've been in a show this whole time, but he asks him to stay. And Jim Carrey, Truman Burbank, turns to the cameras and he says his famous line and he bows down. And he walks out and you see everyone at home watching this show, cheering, celebrating the fact that he's left and then the show's over. So they change the channel and have to find something else to watch. And Truman goes through this door for the first time in his life into reality. He's been living in this other story, but now for the first time he's walking into the unknown, into his real life, into a world he knows nothing about. And in a sense, that's what repentance is like. In a sense, that's what the kingdom is like and what's going on in Mark chapter 1, is there's this story that we've been living in for so long. And the story we live in is the story we live out. We've been living in the story this whole time. And now Jesus comes with this different message, with this different story, with this different kingdom. And we're like, what do I do with this? It's cognitive dissonance. It's disorienting. And eventually the, the question is, will I walk through the door? Will I leave the story that I know? Will I live, leave the world that I know, the, the, the truth that I've believed for so long and step into the ultimate reality that Jesus is calling me to? And in the movie, the voice of the creator says, don't do it, stay in the show, we love you. But well, we have a loving creator who's calling us out of this world that we've been in, into the world that he's made us for, into the world that he's created, into ultimate reality. And he's saying to us, if you will respond, you will enter into the life that is truly life. If you will respond, if you will believe me, if you will trust me, you will find the life that you've been looking for all this time. When Jesus comes into Galilee in Mark 1, his message is jarring. As I said, it's a lot to take in on a Sunday morning. This is a jarring message which requires change and is going to unsettle our lives, especially as we're first introduced to it. But if we're going to respond to this, there, there is a reality that we have to ask God, what is the story that he's got for us to live in? And it means kind of tearing down some of the messages we've believed, some of the ways that we've understood the world and ourselves and meaning and purpose and all of those things, to tear down some of the messages that we receive in San Diego in 2024, to believe the message that Jesus has got for us and to respond to him. That's what repentance really is. But Jesus promises that when we respond, when we repent, when we change our mind and our thinking and our desires and how we live, to live in light of the world that he's created, we will find the life that he has got for us. So he calls us to repent and he calls us to believe. And we'll end on this word believe today. Because really this this call in Mark 1 is to believe in Jesus. It's to believe in the story that he's telling us about. And it's to believe in his message. It's to go through that door into a different understanding of the world and everything where Jesus is the center and to trust in him. So, if repentance is what we turn from, belief is what we trust in. We turn from the ways that we had known and we trust in Jesus to show us the way forward. And both of those words for the linguistic nerds in the room are present imperatives. That means these are not things you do once. You don't repent once or believe once. This is an ongoing rhythm of life for Christians for the rest of time. We'll be repenting and believing until the day that we die, which is not what I was taught when I was growing up. I was taught in a youth meeting when I was 12 years old, if you just raise your hand and pray this prayer, you're pretty much good. But Jesus is calling us to a way of life where we're constantly orientating ourselves around him. We're constantly reorienting our thinking and our living around him and his kingdom and his message. And he calls us to believe. One biblical lexicon defined the word believers to consider something to be true and therefore worthy of one's trust. Because it's true, I'm gonna trust in it. I remember um, being in Durban probably 10 years ago and going with some friends, we we're climbing on a roof and we we're gonna kind of look at the moon and the cityscape and smoke some cigars, it was a really great night. But I remember having to get onto the roof to sit down, it was pretty terrifying. So we're climbing up and this is an old house And these are slippery tiles. And every step for me, being someone who's scared of heights, was terrifying. So I would put my foot on a tile, and I would slowly trust this tile more and more. It's not slipping out. I'm not slipping off of it. My wife's laughing at me. It's all fine. And then I would stop. And then I'd move, and I'd step onto the next tile. Everyone else is already sitting down enjoying themselves. I'm just slowly trusting in these tiles on the roof to see, can they support me? Can I get where I'm going? Am I going to fall? What's going on? And when Jesus calls us to repent and believe, it's, it's a call to trust and put our weight more and more fully in this message and more and more fully in Him. And that is really easy with a part of our lives. Probably for all of us in this room, we know there's a few parts of my life where it's very easy for me to trust Jesus. If you think about that now, I, I don't know what that would be for you. I was thinking about it today. It's very easy for me to trust Jesus with my future. You know why? Because it's far out there and I have no control of it anyway. So I can trust Jesus with my future, and I can trust Jesus with some of my goals and hopes which I haven't really thought through or defined. I can trust him with that. But like the everyday stuff of life, like the big stuff that I'm gonna deal with today and tomorrow, that's where it's harder to like, put the fullness of my weight onto Jesus and believe that he's gonna hold me and believe that this message is true. So what are the things of your life where you are trusting Jesus? What are the parts of your life where you're not trusting him yet? Because Mark 1 is saying, in light of the gospel, in light of the kingdom, in light of who he is, in light of the story that you're in, would you put the fullness of your weight in Jesus? Every part of your life would you entrust to him and believe that he will lead you where you need to go? What are the parts of your life where that's hardest to do? Is it your job, your family? finances, some decisions you've got to make. What are the hardest places to put your trust and your weight in with him? It would be really easy for us to hear a sermon like this or to look at these terms and just define them and go, I've got it. Gospel, kingdom, repent, believe. I understand it. I could write like a little definition for each one. Let's move on to next week. But Jesus' words here are a call to respond to, yes, to know what these things are. What is the gospel? What is his kingdom? What does it mean to repent and believe? But he is calling us to put our weight onto the stuff. He is calling us to respond to him. So what does that look like for you? What does that look like for you today if you've been following Jesus for years or decades? What does it look like to repent, to, to change your thinking, to to believe in light of Jesus' message? What does it mean for you to believe, to trust in him with your life right now? Like not not your life down the line, but the things in your life that you're dealing with this week. What does it look like to trust in him? Or if you've just walked in here today and you wouldn't have called yourself a Christian, what, what does it look like to repent? What does it look like to rethink life in light of this message and to believe in Jesus and trust in Jesus and respond to him? I heard someone once change these words repent and believe to rethink and trust it was so helpful for me. Change my thinking in light of this message and trust in the one who's given it to me. So in light of these words today, what is Jesus calling you to do? What does response look like? What does it look like where you're at to repent and believe? Let's pray. Jesus, as you reveal yourself as the good news, and as you reveal yourself as the kingdom of God, I pray you would help us to see you today. Spirit, I ask you even now to meet us where we're at and to show us what we need to hear today, what we need to understand today, and how we need to respond today. And I ask you, Holy Spirit, for each one of us would you show us what our specific response looks like? What does it mean for us to repent? What does it mean for us to believe? What does it mean for us to follow you? Would you show us, I pray? Amen.
1: Thanks, Grant. Um, I don't know what you guys do for fun, Um. But uh, I like to go to trauma narrative workshops. Uh, and um, just joking, I just, but I, I just got back uh, from Atlanta. I was there for two days with Ashley Stroman uh, and, and Danny Kimlot for Stored South Bay. And um, we're at this conference and um, this masterclass thing um, on walking people through uh, where they get stuck, uh, where trauma from their past is keeping them from moving forward. Uh, it was put on by the Allender Center, and one of the things that we talked about a lot actually was this idea of repentance, and the, and the thing that we were talking about is that, and again, where it where it um, interacted with trauma was was if you don't deal with certain things, you're not able to go in the direction that God wants you to go. You get stuck, and you aren't able to do the things that God's called you to do or be. And and just like the gospel wasn't a religious term, right? It was it was an announcement of good news. Repentance also was not a spiritual or religious term. Uh, in the ancient Mediterranean worlds, it was a directional term. In other words, it was almost like a U-turn. Uh, if they had uh, like Google Maps in the ancient Mediterranean world, you would have heard stuff like "in point two miles, repent." It was it was, it was purely a, a directional turning. And and here's the reality that for for all of us, and this is an ongoing reality. Um, it, it's so easy when you've lived in the Truman Show your whole life. It's so easy to live in another story other than the story of Jesus. It, it it's so easy to find our hope in something other than the hope of Jesus. The church is plagued by drifting away from the true gospel and finding our hope in something other than Jesus. Almost every problem in the church is we look to something other than him to be the central thing, and then we get divided quickly. The church is more divided than it's ever been. It's primarily about people valuing something more than King Jesus. And they care more about their side of a thing than they do the one that should be in the center. The church is plagued by losing sight of its, its, its mission to expand God's kingdom, not our own. Um, we get in all kinds of trouble. We go, we, we're, we're more worried about extending some idea or ideology or belief or some other good news or some other kingdom. And so the reality is, is that you and I, um, we are a treasonous people. We've actually committed crimes against the kingdom and against the king. God created the world. Um, God created a world where we were designed to receive and give love, and instead um, we've come into a world where we're often we refuse to receive His love, and instead and we refuse to extend love. And um, and so this this King Jesus, He comes and He offers us a pardon, in the cross and in the resurrection, in His life, death, and resurrection. He comes in and, and He says, "Hey, there is a way forward. You actually." Um, you've committed crimes, uh, you're worthy of exclusion from the kingdom, right? They're worthy of death. Treason still one of the only crimes that every country in the world pretty much leads to the death penalty. And certainly in a, a renunciation of, of, of the rights of a citizen. And Jesus comes in and says, hey, I, I, I will extend you a pardon. I will pay the penalty for the crimes that you have committed. And I will allow you in, but you've got to walk back in. You've got to turn back in. You've got to you got to make the U turn. You've got to repent and turn around and 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 come back into the kingdom. And it's an ongoing reality because we still, right? We lose track of of what kingdom what we're called to live, and we lose track of the pardon. We lose track of the king. And so, right now, what I want to do is go to communion. And 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 one thing that was emphasized so much this past week, and that was so helpful to me, is that um, in Romans two, it says that it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. It's not the holiness of God, Romans 2, as important as holiness is. It's not the righteousness of God, as important as righteousness is. It says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And as we take communion, we remember the kindness of God that welcomed us into his kingdom before we deserved to be in it. We have a king who, who chose to be set outside the kingdom that we might be brought in. And so this morning, I just want to ask you um, to remember this king who has come for you, who has laid down his life for you, who offers you pardon and welcome. And he doesn't just invite you into a kingdom. He invites you to a table. He invites you into a home. Another way to think about repentance is this idea that um, we, we get lost and we lose sight of home and we need to come back again. And we've got this king that longs to bring us home. And so I, I don't know what's going on in your life where you need repentance, but we all need it. If we're honest, we all get lost. We all lose track of where we are. And in this moment, um, I would encourage you as we go to the table, maybe pray first, but to say, where, where have I gotten lost? Where am I living outside of your kingdom? And what would it look like for me to come home to, my, to, the, to the King?" So I'll go ahead and pray. Jesus, I thank you for your, your, your grace, your pardon. You didn't have to lay your life down. You chose to lay your life down. Every, almost every king in the history of this world asks the subjects of the king to lay down their life to protect the king. But you as our king lay down your life to protect your subjects. Most kings in the history of this world they hide in strong towers and high places. They hide in bunkers underground and they and they hide in skyscrapers up top. But you didn't you didn't remove yourself from us. You entered in, you left the the, 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 the palace of heaven. And the good news was was it's, the kingdom's here. Come home. All is forgiven, come home. and you leave the throne room of heaven and, and you're, you're born in a dirty cave and you enter into, into, into our world, a world where pain is a reality because of our rebellion against the king. because so we've, we've chosen to create our own kingdom instead of being ambassadors of your kingdom. You enter a world where pain is a reality and sin is a reality and trauma is a reality and being wounded is a reality and being betrayed is a reality and you experience all of it. Where shame is a reality, and the one who is in the the white robes of heaven, the only one who's ever been truly holier, truly pure, enters this world, and he takes on our filth. And Jesus, you're um, you're betrayed. And you're wounded, and you're abused, and you're stripped naked, and you're spit on, and you're physically abused, and you're mocked. And as the king of the universe, you've allowed sinful men to put a crown of thorns on your head. They don't know who they're dealing with. But in your gentleness and kindness, you choose to allow them to do it. It wasn't weakness, it was strength. It was kindness. You could have obliterated them. And then you take the long, shameful walk that we deserve to take. and You go up onto that cross. And you as our king, you die for us. Your body is broken. Your blood is shed. That we might come home. That we might receive pardon that we might be ambassadors of that kindness in this world but it starts with that that first act of kindness and pardon and so Lord, as we come to the communion tables would you remind us that you've made a way for us to come home and would you show us how to come home as we thank you for your kindness it's in your name we pray jesus amen